0: Welcome to episode 38 of Father and Son Watch Horror Movies. I am your co-host, the father, a.k.a. Pastor
1: Matt, a.k.a. Matt Rawlings, and I am joined as always by my trusty co-host, Jackson, the son, and boy, let me tell you, after watching this movie, eating basted Thanksgiving turkey is going to feel a whole lot different.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, 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 man. Oh, so, oh boy, we have a uh, special guest this week, someone we've wanted to have on for uh, some time, so... Please welcome all of you out
2: there on Twitter, know him as uh, Andre the Blind. How are you, sir, Andrew? Good. Thanks for having me on. This is uh, one of my favorite movies of recent years, so I'm excited to talk about it, and uh, I've been loving your show, so I'm happy to be a guest.
0: That's great. Yeah, it's great to have you on, and a fellow uh, uh, Buckeye, and we were just just talking off air that there are several uh, horror Buckeyes that we know on Twitter and different podcasts, we need to put That all together one of these days, once Captain Trips has uh, kind of blown away and uh, we get back to uh, life, you know, normal. Uh, a little, some level of normalcy. So, anyway, folks, we are a spoiler podcast. We spoil the heck out of the movies we discuss. And this week, we're looking at Andrew's pick, Don't Breathe from 2016.
2: Wait, is he blind? That's kind I'm of messed up to have a blind guy, isn't it? We do this tonight. Who's there? No,
0: go, go, go! Don't breathe. Rated R. So, Andrew, I know you said this is one of your favorites, but why, why pick Don't Breathe?
2: Well, one of the most... Obvious points of connection for me is the fact that I'm legally blind myself so anytime that I see a blind character in a movie or work of literature it always grabs my attention and um, To have that in a horror movie Is pretty interesting and you don't often see um, Blind people as antagonists as villains so I also think that Um, is an interesting element of this. And it also subverts tropes in a number of ways. I mean, it kind of does the um, home invasion trope, but from the point of view of the invader. So that's also an interesting component of this. So there's just a lot of interesting ways that this movie, it's, it's one of the examples of how a really good premise can make a movie strong. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so uh, Jackson, I know you just finished watching this for the second time uh,
1: just a short while ago. What are your initial thoughts on don't breathe? Well, my first viewing of the movie was some time ago and I didn't know where the story was going as far as the reveal is concerned, uh, but I had a pretty good idea. I think the turning point for me was when they found the safe that had the money in it, but there was still a locked basement. So, um, it's got some great tension in it. I think this is really just a masterclass uh, for modern cinema on tension. It's very thrilling. Uh, great performances throughout the small cast. Um, like I said, there's great cat and mouse tension. And I think the movie's strongest aspect is that it uses the space really well. They mm-hmm. had this house, and they really just used every single aspect, every single room of that house for tension in a very pivotal scene in the movie. Um, But standouts for me overall, the infrared pitch blackness scene in the basement and Stephen Lang. Those are the two strongest points of this movie. Yeah. Yeah. And we should say if you uh, haven't seen this, well, shame on you. But uh,
0: if you haven't seen it, according to uh, IMDB, uh, the synopsis is hoping to walk away with a massive fortune a trio of thieves break into the house of a blind man who isn't as helpless as he seems. Now, that's a bit of an understatement. So, um, <laughs> let's, let's talk about this. Let's talk about the plot and, uh, the screenplay. One of the things that really stood out, uh, to me on a, on a, another viewing was none of these characters are really great people. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I saw this in the theater with our lovely editor producer Megan, And she at first felt really sorry for Stephen Lang's character. Uh, But that switch was flipped once we get into the basement. Um, (laughs) It's like, oh, don't feel sorry for him um, anymore. But, you know, um, you know, Andrew, you brought up some of the tropes. One of the things that I was uh, thinking about while watching this, um, it flexes a horror movie trope that I think isn't talked about enough, which is when the victim becomes the victimizer. Um, Because they see Mm. themselves as a victim. They identify as a victim. And as such, in their mind, they justify horrific actions. And, you know, am I off base here, Andrew? What do you think?
2: No. And I mean, there's a lot of interesting ways you can unpack that because um, you know, one of the, the ways in which people talk about disability and horror, you know, this is a subject that's very interesting to me, mm-hmm. is um, people are very critical of it when the disability is the cause of the villain's um, antagonism. Right. And uh, in this case, it is not his blindness that is the cause of it, it's his grief. Uh, But that has another residence with not really explicitly hit upon, but it, 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 you know, ties into a lot of like slashers, for example, in which there is some sort of traumatic experience that creates their villainy. And um, so you could kind of talk about this in multiple disability angles, but I definitely do see that trope. And I guess it isn't really talked about enough in the kinds of murky moral questions that raises. And it's one of the questions I'm actually very interested in, in just disability and horror in general.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's whether it's Mrs. Voorhees or or whoever. It's that idea that I have been wronged, and so therefore I, you know, am vindicated by you know going out doing these horrible things. And and unfortunately, uh, I first picked up on this back in the '90s uh, when I was in seminary reading a book by a philosopher. Um, out of Michigan, and and he wrote that uh, one of the most dangerous things a person can identify as is a victim, because the moment they identify as a victim, you know, morality can go out the window, you know, it's all about uh, righting a wrong in their mind. I mean, this is kind of a horrific example, but, you know, um, if those who remember the shooting at Columbine, those two people who turned out to be monsters in their eyes, from what we picked up, they thought that they had been bullied and they were just responding, you know, to their bullies. And look at the evil that they kind of wrought.
2: Right. Well, and also you mentioned that uh, you didn't really find the, the burglars, the thieves, to be good people either. So mm-hmm. that's one of the interesting ways that you can take this sort of trope instead of just having like in slashers where there's more of a black and white good versus evil, you know, the, the, the killer is just this um, killing machine. Whereas mm-hmm. all the, um, all the people getting killed are, you know, maybe indulging in sex and drugs, but they're not like bad people necessarily. Right. Um, but in here you have this very, moral murkiness where you're I think it really kind of challenges you to uh, who do you exactly sympathize with here who do you empathize with um who's in the right who's in the wrong and I mean Mm -hmm. I think the reveal kind of really drives you hard towards (laughs) sort of switching um your sympathies towards Rocky but um at the same time i mean i i do remember reading a lot of comments about the film and people saying yeah i'm with a i'm with a blind man he had every right to (laughs) they didn't really address the fact of the reveal but they're like yeah people broke in my house that's what i would do to him you know so oh man (laughs) oh um
0: yeah i'm not sure i really want to hang out with those people um (laughs) jackson
1: what do you think buddy um, on the subject of good and bad in this movie, I think definitely towards the beginning, you're supposed to uh see the burglars as protagonists but not as good people, uh especially what's his name money uh yeah, money, he's yeah. kind of he's kind of a scumbag yeah uh, and you know, I think early on we're more sympathetic to Alex because he's kind of the one who's you know trying to keep everything as morally right as possible. You know, don't bring any guns, don't take any money, uh, less than ten thousand dollars, this guy can't wake up, you know, stuff like that. Whereas money is, you know, whatever needs to be done to get the to get the money needs to be, you know, done. He he's willing to stop at nothing. And then Rocky is kind of in the middle. She's torn between these two things. But obviously as the movie goes on, we're you know, kind of stuck with Rocky, and she becomes the main protagonist, though I think morally, if we were to root for somebody, it would probably be Alex,
0: yeah, he is the one who's kind of the voice of reason among that that group to to be sure, even though Rocky, you know we're we're given that whole thing that she's trying to make a better life for herself outside of detroit and And uh, boy, am I shocked that they you know the Detroit film Bureau allowed them to to uh, film the exteriors there because goodness sakes, it is not a flattering portrait of Detroit by any stretch of the imagination. But, um, and apparently when I was researching this, uh, the earlier draft of the screenplay um, had a darker ending with Rocky ending up imprisoned in the basement and the guy just getting away with it. Um, but then, I mean, the guy who made the very Dark Evil Dead remake thought that that was too dark. Um, but this draft of the screenplay, it still goes there and we might as well address the turkey baster in the room.
1: Um,
0: (laughs) wow. Um, I mean, Andrew, when did you, did you see this when it first came out or did you see it later on or, and you know, when you saw it, what, I mean, what was going through your mind when he broke out the turkey baster?
2: Well, it's interesting because I saw this in the theater, and we have a horror community group here called Columbus. And (laughs) uh, it was a meetup where they had, like, a social hour before the movie, and then um, people came in to, to watch the movie together. And I just remember while watching it while that scene played out people were gasping that it was so mm. unexpected to everybody because despite the ways the trailers can reveal so much these days thankfully that was not yeah. that moment was not revealed and so we none of us were expecting this we were kind of like you know uh just expecting this just to go the route of oh they're just going to keep fighting to get out of there and then they discover there's this woman chained up in the basement and then and then you go to the turkey baster scene and people were um grossed oh. up by that you know seeing you see you're seeing like this white goo dripping from the baster oh. and oh. and then and then when when rocky stuffs it in his mouth too oh. That moment is so gross, oh, and man. everybody was just, uh, you know, laughing this kind of nervous laughter when that happened. It was it was amazing. So, and even rewatching it with my girlfriend too, we were just like, you know, having that weird kind of laugh, horrified laugh reaction watching that scene.
0: Oh man!
1: Oh yeah,
0: Jackson, did you remember that scene? Did it, were you ready for that?
1: Yeah, I remembered it. I just didn't remember how graphic the close-ups were gonna be. Uh, there's one. Th- I think it's like um, like through a tel- uh, what do you call that thing? A microscope. Jeez, um, um, everything's just been blown out of my mind. Uh, but yeah, it's it's very graphic and uh, did definitely make me shift uncomfortably in my seat. Uh, though I did remember that nothing came of that, that thankfully, yeah. you know, he didn't get what he wanted. Uh, I didn't remember what happened to him afterwards uh, and the sound effect it would make. So that was oh. terrifying. Oh, yeah. that's yeah. not a good time to be wearing headphones, which I was. <laughs> uh, and I won't ever make that mistake ever again. <laughs>
0: Oh man. Oh man. Oh man. Yeah. That was a, uh, you know, when I was reading through this and, and, um, <laughs> and, and Fede Alvarez said, you know, well, I, after doing the evil dead, I want to do a movie that wasn't so graphic. And I was sitting there reading that though, thinking how much more graphic could that be, dude? I mean, that I would rather much <laughs> rather see, you know, people demon possessed and chopping their own arms off than I would ever want to see that again. Oh man oh anyway Uh, yeah it's
2: a a different kind of visceral experience that is um unique to just seeing blood and guts as you were saying you know it's it's something we don't really see often thankfully Thankfully, (laughs) but but let me ask you about this scene to what degree does it shift your perspective of, of rocky like you're your sympathy for her or your view of her as a character having to deal with this situation because um, Jackson, I was surprised to hear you say that you you've thought of Alex as the um, you know, as, is kind of the the best one of the group, because I think we really are supposed to um, identify with Rocky or at least um, see her as, she has good intentions, and in as far as she's trying to get out of a really bad situation, she, you know, Detroit itself is impoverished. She's living in a bad home situation. She wants mm-hmm. to get her. I guess it's her sister, right? Her little sister. She so. wants to get her out of there um, with a with some very bad parenting going on. Um, so. Uh, It seemed like the film wants you to see Rocky is maybe doing some bad things out of desperation, but she has a good heart to her, I guess. Yeah, Jackson, go
1: for it. What do you think? well i was definitely rooting for rocky as well as alex but um and the turning point for me of thinking that rocky was the main protagonist was the scene where they discover the woman and rocky is the one who says let's get her out of here while alex is more like let's let's get out of here ourselves and save our own skin so that definitely turned my sympathies towards rocky but originally the thing that you know solidified alex in my mind as a protagonist was the fact that he was willing to go back down into the basement to to you know kind of help out Rocky he could have very well I guess well maybe there wasn't a way out for him but in my mind everything he did seemed very uh like sympathetic to me I could see myself in his shoes and he's just trying to make a living without putting anybody at risk of or in danger but yeah there's always that aspect that Rocky was only committing these acts of crime to kind of help out her life and try to give her sister a better life as well as we see at the end of the movie. So definitely that has given me something to think about. I might rewatch the movie with a different lens, but I saw both Alex and Rocky as, as way more sympathetic than money or even the blind man throughout the movie.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, I think the, um, what flipped the switch for me, as I said, once we get into the basement and we see, even though, you know, the girl he has locked up Uh, killed, you know, his daughter. But, you know, the first thing I thought was, oh, he's got a sex slave, which he kind of does, and he tries to justify. And Stephen Lang, if you hear him interviewed, I mean, that's not his voice. He was trying to do a a different kind of voice when he's doing that whole, I'm not a rapist, you know. And you're sitting there going, and then when he gets that turkey baster, he's, I'm not a rapist. I've never forced myself on anyone. And you're sitting there going, oh, dude, dude, (laughs) dude. Uh, that's sexual assault. I don't care if you know that is that's textbook. I, I'm a lawyer. That's that's textbook sexual assault. Sorry. And unfortunately,
2: um, yeah, that that also just aligns with the way a lot of sexual predators try to justify their behavior and say it's mm-hmm. not rape, you know.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's, but it was, that's when I, all sympathy for him went out the window, and when Rocky is locked up, that's when I started to root for her, and she goes pretty much all, you know, you brought up slashers earlier, Andrew, Um, she pretty much goes all Final Girl.
2: That's true, I didn't, I didn't really think of her as a Final Girl, only because there are so few characters involved, but I guess she is, I mean...
0: Yeah, I mean, she stands up for herself and, and, you know, instead of trying to run again, she's going, I'm going to take this guy out. uh, Yeah. And you even have uh, this kind of slasher ending, right? She's at the bus station. She's getting ready to go to California. She's got her little sister. And then you get the news flash that, nope, he's still alive. (laughs)
2: Yeah, and I don't know if either of you have heard about this. I was just reading the Wikipedia page, and uh, apparently there is a sequel in the works that mm-hmm. the wow. script's done, and I guess I don't know how f- if they're in pre-production, the pre-production stage yet, yeah. but I they heard... are projecting it to come out next year. Yeah, wow. What
1: from what I read, it was supposed to film in April, though I don't think that's happening now.
2: Right, probably not. Yeah, yeah.
1: Well,
0: uh, and Jackson, you brought this up earlier. Um, the cast is strong, in my opinion. Um, Jane Levy, who was primarily known as a sitcom actress before doing uh, Fede Alvarez's Evil Dead remake in 2013, you know, this is her second horror movie. And in my opinion, she really um, pulls it off. Um, Andrew, what do you think of her performance?
2: I think it's amazing. I, I think... Her and Stephen Lang, um, just their performances play so well off each other. And I was not familiar with her at all. I don't think I had seen her in anything uh, before, before Don't Breathe. So I, I, I think she did a great job of being, I guess this is kind of the, the characteristic of a final girl. But, you know, combining vulnerability with that inner strength that comes out.
0: Yeah, she's I had seen her on the sitcom Suburgatory and she kind of played, you know, um, kind of a too cool for school, kind of um, smarter than everyone else in in, in high school, um, but still kind of bubbly and, 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 and likable. And then when I saw that she was cast in the remake of The Evil Dead and then I saw it in the theater and she's a recovering heroin addict. And here, you know, she's playing somebody does home invasions basically for a living. Um, to go from
1: one extreme to the other, I thought she did a great job. Jackson, what do you think of her performance? She was definitely strong in this movie, and I think the most impressive aspect of her performance was her physical acting. I mean, mm-hmm. she's got a she's got to do a lot of physical acting in this, whether it's you know kind of rummaging around in the dark or crawling through this vent space, or even taking down Stephen Lang with a crowbar near the end of the movie. Um, or you know, one of the standout scenes of the movie is that car scene with the dog. Um, She was very uh, committed to this role, it seems, and and she was also great delivering dialogue. I mean, she became very sympathetic as the film went on, but she was also a force to be reckoned with.
0: Yeah. Yeah, agreed. Um, And of course, we need to spend some time talking about the performance by Stephen Lang. I mean, if you go back over this guy's filmography, you go back to the 80s. When man, he looks young in the eighties, if you go back and see him in Death of a Salesman with Dustin Hoffman, or you see him playing an absolutely scrawny slime ball in Manhunter. He plays the um, he plays the tabloid reporter um, in Manhunter, which of course was the first attempt at uh, Hannibal Lecter. And now, I mean, then, oh, well, then of course, he plays the great loudmouth coward in Tombstone. But man, he got cut as he got older. I mean, he got ripped and became a legit lead actor and man is he incredible in this so Andrew what do you say about Mr. Lang's performance
2: yeah I think it is perfect and it you know in a way it's it's interesting because I feel like it is very restrained at least until that reveal like He's not, you don't hear him talk a lot, you know, Mm -hmm. unlike a lot of horror villains where they can go into monologues and he sort of does in that reveal Mm -hmm. scene. But um, before that, he's just very quiet. He's doing what he needs to do. And he's conveying a lot through just his body language and the way he's reacting to things. And I, I, I feel like it was, um, you know, without, his performance, this would be a much weaker movie. Oh, agreed. Jackson, what do you think
1: of uh, Mr. Lang's performance? Stephen Lang is definitely a veteran actor, and it really shows uh, in this movie. He delivers this powerhouse performance where he is this character. There's no doubt about it. I mean, he's different than he ever has been before. Uh, Very intimidating, though uh, initially he's kind of timid and you feel bad for him, uh, especially in the first scene where you see him talking. Uh, where he's kind of mm-hmm. like, who's there? And his voice is kind of, you know, uh, cracking and you feel bad for him. But then by the end of the movie, he is just like a monster. He He's a, a force of nature. Um, but very smart and very cunning and he uses all of his remaining senses uh, in a very like a really ingenious way and he's outsmarting these people that have all their senses Um, and that's like really cool to see how uh, he's set up his whole house to the point where he doesn't need sight at all to be able to do it better than anybody else and um you know when the reveal came around, I was kind of like, okay, that's, that's a cool reveal. Um, that's really creepy and unsettling though. I don't know if it was necessary because I, it would have been tense enough if he had just been a guy trying to defend his home. Um, you know, this guy can get some work done. We saw that earlier with the gun scene with money. Um, but mm-hmm. you know, back to that thing we were talking about earlier, they wanted to portray him more as a villain because he was more sympathetic beforehand. Uh, so by making him a kidnapper, uh, you definitely made him more antagonistic, but I don't think he was that much more scary. He just had more of a backstory. He was still just no. as physically intimidating.
0: Yeah, and it, I was looking up some stuff. According to uh, some trivia that I read, um, Stephen Lang wore restricted contact lenses so that it would affect his vision so he could play the part better, so he could barely see when he when he was acting. And I, I personally, I think he deserved an Oscar nomination uh, for this role. The nominees I looked it up that year were Casey Affleck in Manchester by the Sea, and I think he won it. Andrew Garfield in Hacksaw Ridge, uh, Viggo Mordenson Morten, uh, for Captain Fantastic, which I didn't see. Denzel Washington for Fences, but then Ryan Gosling for La La Land. Uh, I I think I would have I think I would have taken Stephen Lang over Ryan Gosling for an Oscar nomination there. Am I my off base here, guys? I mean, I know he didn't. He only has thirteen lines. But man, does he play it well. And you need to remember, you know, Anthony Hopkins is hardly in Silence of the Lambs. I mean, he's in like, what, 11, 12 minutes, but he won an Oscar for it. So mm-hmm. I think he deserved a nod. Um, Andrew, am I off base
2: there? No, I think you're absolutely correct. And it's just another example of the Academy, you know, dissing horror films. But I, mm-hmm. I think that the the reason his portrayal really is a step above is because as I'm, as I was saying, you know, so much of it comes through his physical movements and just the, the sort of aura he exudes. And it's, I, I feel like it's, it, it, it's a more of a challenge to really characterize a character Without the reliance on dialogue, so I think that's one of the reasons why it's, it makes his performance stand out and unique. Yeah,
0: absolutely, absolutely. So, uh, Jackson, we we are all hoping and praying that one day you'll be a member of the
1: academy, and at least you mm. will vote the right way. Would you have, Would you have voted for Mister Lang? Oh yeah, definitely. And I like Ryan Gosling. I think he does good work in like Drive and uh, Blade the second Blade Runner movie. But definitely Stephen Lang should have at least been nominated because what he does even with so few lines is truly incredible because he feels so present. Just like Hannibal Lecter, he kinda owns this movie even though mm-hmm. he's not the main focus of it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so, like we've said, this isn't a large cast. The only two other characters we really get to know, uh, Dylan, I think it's Minette, uh, who plays Alex. I only knew him, he was Kenny the Bully in Let Me In, um, the remake of Let the Right One In. And Daniel Zavato, I knew him from It Follows. Uh, But I I think both are solid. Uh, Dylan is kind of trying to be the, Dylan Manette, trying to be the voice of reason daniel zavato you know kind of uh putting up that he's the alpha until he's you know confronted by a real alpha and then we see that he's you know he's just fronting as they say so um thoughts on their
2: performances andrew what do you think i thought alex was uh that was a strong performance i mean we don't really get to know a whole lot about him mm-hmm. sort of why he's doing this you i mean other than the fact that he is, he's able to get the security codes from his father. Um, maybe it's his uh, sort of infatuation with Rocky. Yeah. Uh, as far as the other character money, that was the, I felt like one of the weaker points of the movie, because I yeah. don't know. I, I wouldn't say that it was necessarily their performance, but um, I think the performance was fine for what that character was written as. But it, i i i felt like the character was a little too um a little too what's the word i'm looking for superficial or one-dimensional and very stereotypical for that type of character and some of the dialogue just the way he talks is so uh just so hammy it seems like Mm -hmm. yeah
0: yeah i agree i don't yeah i don't think that is uh yeah, Daniel Zavato's problem. I think that was a screenplay problem. I, I just don't yeah. think yeah, there's not there's hardly anything to his character at all. I mean he's just kind of um he is the going back to slashers, he is the stereotype of somebody who just dies quickly. You know, they're just cannon fodder right. from machete right. like, fodder, if you will, yeah.
2: And I and I felt like, you know, because he is um the first character to be killed, it would have made his death more impactful if we had seen a another side of him if you know maybe while they were they were in this situation something came out where he was you know we saw a different side of him like you know a a more compassionate side or something to add more meaning to his death i mean the only thing is that he kind of like, he does say, oh yeah, I'm the only one in here because he, he's trying to protect Rocky. Right. But um, other than that, I mean, there's just his death, the moment of his death, I felt like just while it is supposed to be that kind of, okay, things are ramping up now moment, it just was not, did not have the same sort of impact as the reveal of the woman in the basement does
0: yeah it's not it's not very emotional. We're not really emotionally invested in that in that character. Uh, would you agree with that, Jackson?
1: yeah, in that moment, I definitely felt less sorry for money and more scared for Rocky um, yeah not, i wasn't I wasn't scared that uh that money would die because I knew he was pretty disposable he was written as just a stupid character who's going to get killed but i was worried that in that scene he would become wise of rocky uh, on my first viewing and the second time when i knew he was going to die and i knew he wasn't going to discover rocky in that moment there was no tension for me at all yeah
0: yeah well jackson i know you're the aspiring uh, resident filmmaker here so let's talk about some of the technical aspects first of all the
1: cinematography what did you think of the cinematography jackson the most impressive aspect for me was how the camera moved and how they got the camera into confined spaces. Uh, and I mentioned earlier, the infrared scene down in the basement when they're all in pitch blackness, I think that was masterful. Just the way everybody shot and they had those contacts in, which makes their, their eyes look bigger. I know that's not a naturally occurring thing, but it, it did add to the effect uh, pretty well. I think the fact that the camera is so mobile adds to the tension because you feel like you're along on this ride with these characters and that you could be discovered, like, for instance, uh, when Alex is in... I guess it's a work bench room. I don't really know a tool room. Uh, yeah. And it's also got like a washer and dryer, but the blind man is coming after him and the camera is kind of in these cramped up spaces with Alex. And you really feel like you're about to be discovered as well. So the cinematography certainly adds to the tension in a very noticeable way, uh, though. I wouldn't say it's the standout feature of the film. Okay. Andrew about what do you think? How
2: do you think the film was shot? I pretty much concur with Jackson. I mean, I, I feel like the, uh, as you mentioned, that that basement scene, and as well as you mentioned earlier, the um, scene at the end in the car, the way that was shot, I felt like was was amazing. And I, I feel like um, the the standout feature of this movie is in, in terms of the structure of it is just the continued maintaining of suspense which i feel like yeah. is difficult for a movie to do usually there is like you know usually in the middle there's a lull where where things are you know developing or whatever but From the moment that money dies, I feel like you don't really have a chance to breathe. You know, that that title uh, really comes out in the way you're watching this film, because from that moment, Rocky and Alex do not have a chance to really um, Mm. to really rest They're They're constantly on the go. And I don't know if this is um, a cinematography thing or more of the way it's written. But one of the things I felt like i noticed this on rewatch that was strong is the way in which um the next the next sort of menace or obstacle is revealed because you'll see they you'll see rocky or alex reacting to something and then you'll see what the danger is like they'll just have escaped from one thing you know they just escaped from the blind man and then oh the dog is there you know mm-hmm. or or the other way around. And so I felt like the way it sets that up was well done.
0: I agree, it is a very suspenseful film. I mean, once they get into the house on, it is, it is nonstop. And typically something like that just wears me out, but that didn't happen here. Um, I, I really like, I think the cinematography um, really plays to that. Um, I think it helps create that tension. And I also, I mean, the editing, both the the editing and the sound editing here was tight. And I remember I was rewatching it uh, today, and my wife was walking up the stairs, and she and she had seen it in the theater with me, and she looked and she goes, "Wow!" Because I I'd forgotten how good the sound effects and everything here are, and the editing, this the film editing is so tight. I mean, they shot the exteriors in Detroit, but the interior scenes were shot in Budapest, Hungary, um, and somehow it seems you know
1: seamless. Um, Mm -hmm. Did it it strike you that way, Jackson? What about you? I definitely didn't notice any um, difference between the exteriors and the interiors. That's really impressive. They flew all the actors out to Hungary to film. Yeah, they did. I mean, whatever's cheapest, I guess. It's impossible (laughs) to film in Detroit or L.A., I'm sure, but... um, yeah that was that is very impressive. Now that I know that, I think the editing has earned my appreciation a lot more. though I was impressed with the sound editing. Uh, I think those guys deserve props, especially during the scene uh, where the blind man is kind of bagging up money's body, and um you know, Alex steps on a creaky floorboard, and then, mm-hmm. you know, there's so much tension, just immediately all the air is sucked out of you. Um. That was a really well-edited scene and I think the rest of it is really serviceable though I didn't notice anything that made me go wow.
0: Yeah. Yeah, what about you uh Andrew what did you think?
2: Yeah, pretty much pretty much the same as you you've said. I guess yeah, it's the editing, the combination of the cinematography and the editing. I mean, I felt like everything was seamless as you've been saying and you know, it's it, it's interesting because there doesn't seem like there is much of a score to the movie or the score is very minimal. And Mm -hmm. I'm assuming that that was a purposeful decision that they wanted to use the combination of silence and the, the sounds that you do hear the contrast between that to help add to the suspense. So on a rewatch, I really noticed that and how much silence was used.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, this is a, um, yeah, the silence there, there is just a little bit of music that breaks through. And I, I, I read that actually Fetty Alvarez actually played in the orchestra um, mm. that did some of the score. And so, but yeah, there's, it's very minimal. And I think that, uh, I think that works in its, in its favor. This was a movie that made um, 160 million and it was made for less than 10 million. And this was a huge hit. Mm-hmm. um and i think deservedly deservedly so unfortunately Fetty alvarez hasn't always had that track record his last film uh, 2 years ago was the the sequel to the girl with the dragon tattoo i think it was made for 45 million and only made 35 million so mm. he de- he de- he does have one box office bomb on his resume but hopefully that won't keep him from making horror movies cuz he's obviously a horror movie fan and you can see a lot of shout outs to other horror movies in this i mean we talked about the car scene with the dog Fede Alvarez has, has admitted that was a kind of a hat tip to Cujo. Oh, really? Uh, Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he does. Yeah, absolutely. So there are, there are some things in there like that. So, well, um, what else do you want to discuss here? Uh, Andrew, you're the guest. What else uh, did you note while uh, rewatching don't breathe?
2: I I think we've hit upon a lot of things. I guess one one thing that stood out to me on rewatch that i hadn't really thought about is, is that monologue when uh, you know once he has uh Ro- rocky trapped down in the basement and um he says something interesting and especially with you being a pastor i wonder mm-hmm. what your your thoughts on this work because he says you know the line uh, god there is no god uh um, right once you accept the idea that there is no God you can do anything or something like that, which it is kind of, I, I feel, I don't know if this was intentionally meant is this, but it reminded me of um, Dostoevsky's the brothers Karamazov, because the one brother yes. says something like, you know, what if, if there is no God, anything is permitted. Right. Yeah.
0: I, th- I, I definitely think that was uh, a hat tip to Dostoevsky. And uh, mm. so I mean, it is one of those things I remember uh, when I was an atheist for, for, for 10 years, remember being appalled that, that someone would say that, you know, I, I don't have uh, any morality. Um, and it's, I, I don't think Fetty Alvarez, from what I've read, is, is, is making that case against people who, who don't have some kind of spiritual life, that they have no morality. I think this person, though, going through what he has gone through um, has basically in order to justify in his mind that, you know, somebody who we were kind of led to believe that he was at least at one time uh, a Christian, because there are, if you look closely, there are spots on the wall where there were crucifixes hanging. Oh, really? I didn't notice that. Yeah, and they've been taken down. and so. And but one thing is for sure, um, if uh, my reading of history is correct, sometimes the most dangerous person in the world is someone who claims not to believe in God, but is actually angry with God, blames God, and then is just out to you know uh, try to get some modicum of of justice. Or you know, it, it's it's a scary, scary thing. Um, You know, Robert Mugabe, one of the horrific dictators in in Africa, at one time wanted to be a priest, and then he turned his back on it and just basically said, well, I don't believe in God. I don't believe that that, uh, there is anything as objective morality, and so therefore I can just do what I want, and he did, and there are those people out there. So I don't think Alvarez was making like a blanket statement that uh, an atheist or an agnostic is immoral, but I think he is saying that there are those people out there who have come out the other side. And and it's one of those things where I don't believe in God, but I hate him. And I think that's right. kind of where, the, I think that's where the blind man is after losing his daughter and so forth and losing his sight. I think he's just an angry, angry man.
2: Yeah, that makes total sense. It's, it would be interesting to sort of, um, think about this, analyze the movie then, uh, as a as an allusion to um the brothers Karamazov because yeah. I, mean, I feel like the the brother who made that statement was it was the same thing it was sort of this anger at God, yeah, yeah,
0: no, I think that's what's going on here there's there's yeah there's uh um you know somebody who was raised in a pretty conservative Christian home when I ran away from home when I was fifteen and declared myself an atheist um you know, looking back, I didn't, you know, didn't assault anyone or anything that bad. But I do remember justifying <clears throat> doing a lot of stupid things like getting, you know, drunk as a 16 year old or whatever, because and because that, there is no God, there is no morality. That's how I thought, you know, that's right. uh, I should have I should have thought better than that. I didn't. But, uh, yeah, I think that's where that character is coming from. But I no, I think you're right. I hadn't thought of that that it's a, a possible hat tip to Dostoevsky. But now that you bring it up, I do think that's what's, what was going on there. You know, Alvarez does like to draw, you know, he does like to point out those things, whether they're literary, whether they're horror movies, whatever. He does like to do that. And so I think that was probably intentional. Yeah. That would be an interesting paper. Yeah. 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 And so since you're about ready to be a doctor, maybe that'll be a paper you can write one day. Um <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean I I do hope that once I once I graduate I can um start writing some sort of analytical horror criticism because I think that'd be a very fun whereas right now I'm analyzing uh 19th century American literature so I'm looking forward to being able to write more in depth about horror movies. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. Look forward to seeing that. So Jackson, what about you? What do you want to hit on with uh, Don't Breathe?
1: Well, I'm surprised that this hasn't been brought up already, but this movie is obviously inspired by Wait Until Dark starring Audrey Hepburn, right? Oh, I think
0: there's – i definitely there is an illusion there as well. Yeah, that was brought up in some of the trivia uh, that
1: I read that Alvarez is a big fan of Wait Until Dark, yeah. Because, I mean, it's kind of just flipping the script on that, whereas Wait Until Dark was about a blind woman who is the victim of a home invasion. This is kind of a a blind man is is invaded, and then he kind of victimizes the home invader. So it's a twisted version of that tale from the other side's perspective, uh, which I thought was really interesting, having seen that movie years ago and now watching this. Uh, One other thing I want to hit on and this is from an animal lover's perspective, even though that dog was vicious, I was uh, very happy that Rocky didn't kill it, because he's a guard dog. He's just doing his job. He's no Cujo.
2: Yeah, I th- I had the exact same feeling. <laughs> I was like, I, if the blind man dies, I'm okay with that, but uh, they better, she better not kill that dog, because <laughs> that is I mean, and I know people make fun of this for horror, horror movie fans for being like this, but I am one of those people who, you know, you can kill as many people as you want and that's fine. But once you start killing animals, that's that that really upsets me. So So you
0: got really upset with Michael Myers when he that German Shepherd sniffed him out in Halloween.
2: Yeah, yeah. Lester <laughs> wasn't doing anything. <laughs> yeah, he was just Lester, protecting man. the house. He, Michael no, no. Myers killed many dogs. He did that throughout the series.
0: Yeah, yeah, he did. He did. So, oh, man. Yeah, I and I know, especially Jackson, because you've had a dog for many, many years, Mm -hmm. who a dog that seemingly never ages Duke and (laughs) uh, who has a little bit of Rottweiler in him. So yeah, I thought about that when the dog was out there. And he was, I was like, Oh, Jackson's not gonna
2: like if anything happens to this dog. (laughs) Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned the dog, though, because I feel like, you know, that you could consider that another character. And I, I felt like the dog really added a lot more menace and tension than if it was just the blind man. I mean, I, I feel like it would have worked with just him, but mm. I felt like that it was like, like I said, you know, they escape the blind man only then, oh, then the, the, then the guide dog is there. <laughs>
0: Oh man. And that, and I've had a Rottweiler before. I mean, they're very loyal animals. They're often depicted in movies as, as vicious, but they're actually very intelligent, just very loyal animals. And Jackson, you know that since you have a dog, that's part Rottweiler. And I, I still mm-hmm. remember, uh, I don't know if you're, if you remember back that far that you had a, um, uh, what was, it was a dog in the neighborhood that charged you. Um, mm-hmm. it was a pit bull that charged yep. you. Endo. And, Oh yeah. Okay. You do remember. And and your dog Duke jumped on its head, ripped its, bit its ear off Mm -hmm. and it went yelping off. And he just turned around and looked at you
1: like, okay, let's keep walking. And Duke is, Duke (laughs) is not that big of a dog. I mean, he only comes up to my knees. He weighs about 50 pounds, but his attitude is that of a fully grown Rottweiler, which is really funny because he just struts around with this confidence that only a giant dog could have, uh, So, I mean, I've got a soft spot for dogs in movies. Whenever I see a dog in peril, I'm really nervous. Like when, in that scene with the car, whenever she had that contraption rigged up with the uh, with the trunk, I was really worried yeah. she was going to chop its head off with the trunk. And I was like, don't nah, do that. But instead, yeah. she just trapped it in there. So that was nice.
0: Well, I guess I need to amend my earlier statement. There is one likable character in this movie from the beginning, and it's the dog. <laughs>
1: yeah
2: yeah yeah the the dog is just doing what it what it what it needs to do and it's it's uh doesn't have any malicious intentions no he's just loyal
0: to his to his owner that's all i mean that's what rottweilers do they're just loyal to to whoever so oh man all right so jackson do you have anything else are we ready to give our ratings and recommendation for this puppy no I think into. I'm well, that's a good one.
1: Uh, <laughs> that's just soured my day. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, sorry. uh no, I, I think I'm good. I don't I don't really have anything of of merit to add.
0: All right. Well, Andrew, this was your pick on a scale of one to ten, the IMDB rating. What would you give this and what would you recommend our listeners do? Should they rent this, buy it? What
2: do you think? I give it a solid nine out of 10. Um, there were just a few issues, like I said, the character of money, um, things yeah. like that, but not nothing too major. So yeah, solid nine out of 10. And I would say buy it. this, this is to me, it's a, it's a very rewatchable movie, even though it's, it's not something that necessarily has like a lot of, um, you know, a lot of character development or, or story per se is so much of it is based on that suspense. But for me, at least I've watched it about four or five times at this point And, you know, it's, it's definitely held up on rewatch. So yeah, I say bye. All right. All right. Jackson, what do you
1: say? For me, I'm not so hot on it, but I still like it a lot. It's an eight out of ten for me. Uh, I watched this on prime though I think you rented it, so that's how I was I did, able to yeah. see it. Uh, I would recommend you rent it, especially if you like like thrillers um, like this movie in this vein. Uh, but yeah, eight out of ten I would recommend a rental, but uh, you know it's, it's not a perfect movie for me, but I did have a lot of fun with it. Yeah. I'm, I'm close to Andrew on this. I gave this a nine out of 10. I call it a
0: buy. I plan on picking it up. Uh, I saw that the Blu-ray, you know, I love when Blu-rays come with a lot of extras. There's not a whole lot of extras with the Blu-ray I saw, but it does have a commentary with Fetty Alvarez and Stephen Lang. And I definitely want to hear that. Um, so I call it nine. Out, it's a nine out of ten for me. I agree. The I agree with Andrew. The one knock I have: money isn't really a, even a character. He's just kind of a yeah. You know, he's, you know, he's just fodder for the blind man. Uh, which, by the way, we didn't bring this up. Apparently, he does have a name, even though in the um, closing credits he's listed as the blind man. But apparently, his name in the script is Norman. Um, really? But, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway. All righty. Well. Folks, stay tuned for our pick for next week. And we plan on having a, another guest join us if they're able to make it. They're planning on it. Until then, you can find us at fatherandsonwatchhorror.com. We also have a Twitter page, and a, a Twitter account, and an Instagram page, and a closed Facebook page. We also now have a Patreon page. So for as little as $2.50 a month, you can help keep the podcast going. I know, Jackson, you have recorded a solo commentary for the Patreons a movie that we watched together with Joe Bob a mm-hmm. a modern
1: classic uh, what something
0: <laughs> you want to tell the folks what what the movie is that you recorded a commentary for
1: yeah so i was i was thinking okay we got to do a trial run for this commentary thing what would be entertaining to watch with the patrons so the first thing I thought of was schlock. And then immediately after, Demon Wind from 1990 <laughs> came to mind. Because we watched this together whenever you came down to Virginia. And we watched yep. it on Joe Bob. And the entire time, both you and me were just looking at each other like, what is happening in this movie? There's people turned into dolls. There's people turned into bald Vulcan aliens. There's a giant meat Sasquatch uh, who tells everybody that they're pigs. It's a hoot all the way through it's just an hour and a half but it's jam-packed full of laughs so yeah i decided to do a commentary of that and i'm planning on doing commentaries very frequently because uh they're relatively easy for me to do but i think they're they're fun for me to do as well and uh it's just a nice way of experiencing a movie again with other people they can listen to it again and not you know feel so alone if they don't have anybody to watch demon wind with because who in their right right mind would watch demon wind with them You can always add in my witty commentary. Oh,
0: okay. Well, all righty. Well, Andrew, we're glad you've been with us.
2: Tell people where they can find you online, sir. You can find me on Twitter at Andred. That's A-N-D-R-E-A-D, The Blind, or uh, you can find me on Letterboxd at dread I try to review as many of the movies as I watch as possible. So, and uh, if you're, especially if you're interested in um, talking about disability and horror, please reach out to me. I'd be curious to, to hear your thoughts. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And so I know Jax and I both follow, uh, follow Andrew on Twitter. It's definitely worth it. And we send our, our best thoughts and everything out to you as you uh, wrap up your, uh, doctoral process and, and we look forward to seeing what you're going to do in the future with that. I, I, am really excited that more and more people, whether it's Rebecca McKendry or Dr. Kyle walking dead or, or, or you, you know, more academics, you know, turning to focus on horror, I think is a great, great thing. And so I, I can't wait to see what you do in the future, man.
2: Thank you. Yeah, absolutely.
1: That's uh, going to be great. So Jackson, where can they find you online? Well, on Twitter, I'm at Kane underscore Hero 12. That's K-A-I-N-E underscore Hero 12. On Letterboxd, I'm at Kane Hero, one word. And I've also got a YouTube channel, which I will be posting uh, probably half an hour long video to uh, later this week. And you can find that linked in both those bios. All right. Well, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd as Pastor Matt
0: R. On Letterboxd, I've been working now through the movie horror movies of 1998. Uh, Back before I started my doctoral programs, I was able to do about one a day. Now it's about one a week. Uh, But you can find that. So next week, we plan on having another special guest. Um, He's going to try to make it anyway. We plan on having Mr. Sean Davis, a.k.a. Haddonfield Hatchet, uh, on the show to discuss one of his favorite movies, The Monster Squad, from 1987. Yeah, which is currently streaming on Amazon Prime. So that'd be great. So Andrew, thanks for being here. Please come back again. We'd love to have you best of luck to you and your future and everything you're going to be doing, um, in the world of academia. And, uh, so hope. Yeah, you Yeah. Thank back sometime. you.
2: Thank you. Yeah. I'd love to come back. Thanks for having me on. Uh, this is a good distraction from all the, the <laughs> stuff that's going on right now. And thanks for continuing the podcast. Cause uh, you know, to all those people doing podcasts, it's it's one of the things keeping my sanity during these stressful times.
0: Oh absolutely. And so yeah, and we as always, uh we want to give a shout out to a number of our friends out there who are podcasting. We um, don't just do this podcast. We also listen to a lot of podcasts, Land of Creeps with Greg Amortis and Big Bill and, and, uh, Dave, Dr. Shock Becker and Retro Movie Geek with, with Joel and Peter and, and, and Daryl. And of course, HMP, uh, Dino and Michelle over at the home huh? podcast, uh, all those, there's so many, we could go on terror on the tube, some great podcasts out there. So while we're all quarantined and waiting for this to blow over and we do hope all of you are safe and that you're social distancing and then and, and you're just being uh smart and uh, so that this thing will go away as quickly as possible so that's it for this show next week the monster squad lord willing and so jackson say goodbye to the good people
1: goodbye and remember to color in your ladybug tattoos
0: oh boy
1: <laughs> okay <laughs>
0: Until next time, folks, remember the family that watches horror movies together slays together. See you next time.